Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stamon. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast. Or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week. Or, of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Part 5 We went into a lonely public garden at the back of a nunnery, and there I told Tom what I thought. If you will ship enough gold lace, Tom, I said, you can go alongside the gry with your tug at any hour of the day or night and take her wherever you choose. I don't see how, he said. You have seen how. You saw the port admiral just now drawing salutes out of deaf mutes. Disciplined men obey the symbol of authority long after authority has ceased. Then you want me to put on a uniform of that sort, go on board the Gry and order them to unmoor. Yes. I believe it might work. I feel sure it will. That would be perfect, he said. The English tug is a difficulty. What would a naval officer here be doing with an English tug? I don't know, I said, and they won't know. But they won't ask. Theirs not to reason why. Theirs but to do or die. Like disciplined men, they will obey orders without question. Yes, he said, but as I told you, they will have shifted the gry during the afternoon. This second shift with an English tug will be more than they'll swallow. They'll swallow any order backed by enough gold lace. If you ship enough stripes, you can take a new crew from the guardhouse and put all the gry's present crew under arrest. Well, that's an idea, he said. You bet it's an idea. He seemed inclined to accept the plan. It depends on one thing, I said. Can you get a uniform like that port admiral's? Uh, Something like it, perhaps, but I'm not sure, because it's the president's levy tonight. All the outfitters with levy dress uniforms to hire will have hired theirs out by this time. Could you buy one? I might be able to buy one secondhand or from the theatre people. Well, go out and try it, I said. If you get it, put it on tonight. Go boldly down to the naval stairs, order a guard to take you in a picket boat to the Gry, assume command of her, put her crew under arrest, make them unmoor her for you. The slasher will then appear. You can send all the naval men ashore in the picket boat and proceed to sea. It's a scheme, he said. You bet it's a scheme. One point I should change, he said. We ought to go in the boat to the slasher and have the slasher with us when we reach the Gry. Then we could start at once. Hmm, the sooner the better, I said. Even so, there'll be the police patrols at the harbour mouth. How are we to get past them? Well, don't you think we might bluff the police patrol with gold lace if we can bluff the naval ratings? We might, he said, but the Gry is a marked ship, a prisoner, in fact. They will ask what is this prisoner doing out of prison. Or we can say that we're taking it to Cape Catouche for greater safety. Well, they'll ask for the Admiralty orders. Forge some. So you said before... I would if I had the forms, but I haven't and don't know what they look like and haven't time to find out. Will you try the plan, I asked? Will you buy a uniform? I'll try to, he said. It is the only likely plan propounded so far. I'll have to buy two uniforms, one of lesser rank for Grau. As I don't want to be recognised, would you try to buy the uniforms? But they'd know me for an Englishman and they'd never sell them to me, and I should not know the things to ask for. True, he said. I must do it. I daren't risk going to the outfitters. I shall go to a theatrical costumier's down near the front. There'll be none left to buy. I shall have to hire. The costume shop near the front had a bright window in which a bottle green naval uniform, thick with gold lace, fronted a sky blue soldier's uniform, thick with silver lace. 
In between them, a wooden ballet girl in spangles stood archly on one leg. I told Tom that he had better go in alone, and to this he agreed. After he had gone in, I hung about on the front, looking at the harbour. The taking of the gry was still far off in the future. The event of the moment was the getting of the uniforms. I have always hated the cocksure man and dreaded any feeling of confident certainty when about to attempt anything. When there is a sort of hopeful distrust, a mixture of resolve and dread, then the soul wins helpers who will often bring her through. I was afraid that Tom was too confident that the uniform would be supplied. I tried to think what a London or Portsmouth outfitter would do if asked for such a uniform. They would ask for the name and consult the Navy list. If they do that here, I thought, and Tom gives a false name, the chances are either that the name won't be in the list or that the man whose name he gives will be known to them. He may even be one of their clients. Then I thought, the police here must be on the lookout for gate crashes at the levee. They must always be trying to prevent impersonation or people coming into the presidency under false colours. They will have some understanding with the outfitters, no doubt, so that they may learn beforehand what uniforms have been issued. Even if this be not London or Portsmouth, but a city in the sun, it is in a state of unrest with a beginning war fever. Precautions must be growing more stringent hourly. I walked up and down, wondering why Tom didn't come out. Ten minutes passed. The quarter hour passed. I began to be very anxious, thinking that he must have been arrested or held during inquiries. I imagined the tailor being bland and suave, trying the fit of this or that while his colleague in the back shop telephoned to the secret police to send a man to make inquiries. After I'd been waiting for 20 minutes, a car drove up to the door of the outfitters. Two men, who looked very like police officers, came out of the car, entered the shop and remained there. Ten more minutes passed. I had given up hope almost when Tom suddenly appeared, followed by a boy carrying a tin uniform case. A taxicab drove up and the boy opened the door for Tom, put in the case, received a tip and went. The cab drove off, passed me, turned a corner and then stopped for me. We drove for a couple of hundred yards without speaking because in these southern parts there is no partition between driver and passenger. Tom stopped the car and dismissed it. When we were in one of the public gardens, sure that we were not being followed, Tom said, I have the uniform complete. I thought you'd been arrested, I said. You're there for hours. Was I, he said. It didn't seem long. There were two or three little things to be done to the suit and I had to try quite a lot of boots and hats. Were no questions asked? Questions? No, these fellows are second-hand men, only too glad of a sale. We're over the fence then. Well, we're over that fence, probably yes. It never really was a fence. It was to me, I said. Oh, no, he answered. The real fence is there, out there, to the left. That low, yellow building on Nun's Point. That's the harbour police station. And how we're to get past that unchallenged, I do not see. Whatever bluff we throw will be called there. Well, all right, Tom, I said. I'll take her out through Drake's entrance, where the police won't be. Drake's entrance, he said. Do you mean over there? Yes, there, where the water's breaking. But there's no passage there. Well, Drake got through. Yes, Drake in his little ships. There's not enough water for the gry. Yes, there is, I said. But good Lord, he answered. It's a blind passage all sown with rocks and it isn't even lit and it isn't even buoyed. No one uses it. It's well charted. I've read the chart. Yes, but what good will the chart be? You'll be in a tug with a toe in perhaps blind fog, groping like the blind. 
What will guide you when you're in it? The lead, I said. And then there are two sprouting rocks which make an odd noise. And there are bellboys on the worst shelves. And at the entrance, one can get an echo. These are only sounds when all is said, he answered. It's the devil of a place. There's a chart in the shelter there, I said. Come down and look at it. It isn't so bad, believe me. On the seafront at that time, there were various kiosks or shrines to the memory of famous men. Some of them had large-scale charts of the harbour on their walls so that visitors might pick out the various points and at night identify the beacons. I led the way to the nearest kiosk and ran my finger along the course of the Drake's Channel. I was right. There was plenty of water for the gry, but only in a narrow, twisting lane. In that lane, the shelves thrust into the channel in a way that cooled my ardour. The chart was printed in tints of blue to show the different depths of water. From the ultramarine of the ocean to the palest tinge, almost a white of the shore. The channel had at all times a steady five fathoms in it, often deepening to seven, but it curved like a reversed S laid on its side, and its bends were narrow. It was at the bends that the sides shoaled. Tom was right about there being no light upon it. There were two bellboys at ugly points and a beacon on each of the two rocky islets at the mouth of it to seaward. These would be invisible or almost invisible to vessels coming out. Of other guides to the mariner groping out, the only ones likely to be useful were the two blowing holes, one at each bite of the S, the east and west roarers. Two blowing holes which might not always be blowing, and two bellboys which perhaps one could not depend upon, made but slight comfort to one in a narrow channel, towing in fog. Still, it might not be foggy. We should avoid the police that way, and then I was young and fancied my skill. Besides, the sun was shining as though it could never be night, and my friend was there as though it could never be foggy. It was only taking a ship round a bend, and then round another bend, and then round a corner. Who couldn't do that? Or at least, who wouldn't try? You see, I said, there's water enough. With a good quick leadsman, you could do it blindfolded. Blindfold, he repeated. On a clear moonlit night with no wind, you might scrape through with luck. But tonight, in a fog with a tow, you'll pile her up and leave her bones there. No man could take a ship through that in a fog. Even as we spoke, a man entered the kiosk and posted up the midday meteorological report, which promised very fine hot weather with haze or fog along the coast at night. Blindfold, he repeated, jerking his hand at the report. Put it out of your head. You can't think of it. We went out to the kiosk and looked at that distant naval harbour and the sea beyond it. At the moment, what with the wind and the set of the tide, the reefs in Drake's entrance were breaking white and the roarers spouting. Far out to sea, as it seemed, at what was the very mouth of the entrance, the two rocky islets flashed with spray. Seen from a distance like that, when all the teeth were showing, I must say it looked the devil of a place that Tom called it. So you won't try it? I asked. No, he said. It's out of the question. Let's lunch. Let us lunch well, I said, for we may not lunch well again for some time. And let us call for Grau and his wife, he said. We drove back to Duke of Rivas Street and went to the big bare room. The two Grau's came in. Grau was a sturdy, stocky seaman with a scar on his jaw where an Indian had jabbed him with a spear. It gave him a kind of hesitation in speaking. Both the Grau's looked perturbed. Have you heard the news while you've been out? Grau asked. No, no new news, we said. What is it? Fighting? No, he said, but the harbour is to be closed tonight with a boom. Whatever for? A measure of protection, they say. There's no doubt of it. I went out to make sure and they've got it half-rigged already. 
There'll be no taking out the gry by that way. Are they closing Drake's entrance too, I asked. What is Drake's entrance? The southern channel, I said. I didn't know that there was a southern channel. Do you mean among all those reefs? Yes. Well, if it be a channel, I suppose they'll close it, but I shouldn't think that anyone would try to take a ship in there. It isn't buoyed nor lit. Have you charts handy, I asked. Charts and to spare, he said. Charts were brought and unrolled. I gazed at them, and as I gazed, I thought of old Drake, and felt oddly that he was near and ready for a flutter. That winding serpent of the channel became luminous in my mind. I can master you, I thought. Those Scylla barks there, and Charybdis bites here, and the rocks rise up and clash at me. Growl looked over my shoulder as I looked at the charts. Drake's entrance looks like a pretty rocky alley, he said. It's all that, I answered, but you've got a Liverpool tug with all her crew. Any Liverpool tugmaster would try it. In thick weather, Grouse said. It will be thick tonight. It's thick in the Mersey one day in four, I said, and they don't stop for thickness. Well, perhaps not, Tom said, but they know the Mersey, and they don't know this place. I know it pretty well, I said. Well, it seems the only thing left, Grouse said. So you, countryman of Drake, what do you advise us? I should say let's go aboard the tug and get the tugmaster to come with us in a motorboat to see Drake's channel. If he says it can't be done, be sure it can't be done. But if he says he'll try it, then you may be sure that there's a chance. Very good, said Tom. We'll put it to the tugmaster. I'll take a chart or two, I said, and a compass if you've got one. I've a boat compass, Grau said. It isn't what you call great shakes. Well, it will serve, I said, while we go round the bends with it. It would be as well, Grau said, in his hesitating way, if we didn't show the charts. They may have sentries on the seawall. We'd better seem to be fishing. I'll take lines. In this last day or two, these people have been a bit spy-mad. We put the charts into a dispatch case. Grau pocketed the compass and took two wooden frames of sea line with spoon bait. At the stairs, we hired a motorboat, the Galfredo, in which we put out, through the small craft, to the slasher. I had so often seen the slasher in old days in the Mersey. She had been the talk of the seamen for years, for many famous toes, on one day that was remarkable to myself, I had seen her lying close alongside the shining branch, ready to take us to sea, and had envied her men with their breakfast of kippers, while I, as a reefer, breakfasted on an outward bounder's bread. And there she was again, a part of the Mersey in that faraway port, a piece of England in that foreign place, one of the picked tugs of the world, giving that sense of quiet power which takes a sailor's eye. What is her master's name, I asked, it used to be Stott. Stott is dead, Tom answered. Her present man is Tollock, Julius Caesar Tollock. Well, that's an odd name, I said. He's an odd man, perhaps, Tom said, but more than precious to me at this time. The Galfredo ran alongside the slasher. We climbed aboard her. An alert-looking, pale-faced man with fair side whiskers and a bushy moustache came forward to meet us. I noticed that he gave us an extraordinarily swift, sharp scrutiny. This was Captain Tollock. There was no doubt at all of his being a resolute soul with a quick intelligence. I did not doubt that he was by nature a daredevil who would gamble on a chance. Tom introduced us. The captain led the way to his little cabin and offered us whiskey and white Peru brandy, which we refused. Tom explained that the main entrance was to be closed and that the other would be our only chance. It's a bad, narrow, twisting channel, he said, and it will be foggy or at least thick from midnight on. The captain looked to him, then at Grau, 
and myself. Do any of you know this channel? he asked. I've got a general hang of it, I said. Is there water for the ship? Yes, at any state of the tide. What is the set of the tide? Going out on a flood, it would come dead ahead in the narrowest bit. In the second and third reaches, the reefs would kill the set, but you would get it ahead again as you turn for open water. He nodded and asked, And what speed of tide would you get, sir? I don't know, I said. It will be on the charts, but it is now just the tide we'll have after midnight. Perhaps you could come with us to have a look at the place and see it for yourself? There's nothing I'd like better, he said. What do you think about trying this channel, Tom asked him. Would you be prepared to risk it? I'd better see it, sir, with my own eyes before I say. What am I likely to meet in it, sir? This last one was to me. Rocks shelving down or jutting out into the fairway, I said. I don't mean that, sir, he said. Shall I find ships put in to anchor or fishing boats with their nets down or some coastwise steamer clawing in in the fog and then have to alter course suddenly? As far as I know, the channel is never used, I said. Fishers go there, of course. You might meet them, but you won't find ships moving or anchored there. Isn't that right? I asked Grau. It's not a fairway, Grau said. The old dictator was going to make it one, Tom said, but it would cost seven million, and the present men shrink from it. Captain Tollock thought for half a minute. Have you a picture of it, he said, meaning a chart? We spread a chart for him, and he looked at it with keen attention for perhaps twenty seconds. I noticed that he measured the distance of each reach with his forefinger. What do you think of it? Tom asked. We'd better have a look at it, sir, he said cheerfully. It's best to know these places like the palm of your hand. I'll get my mate, Harry, to come too, sir, if you've no objections, and no time like the present. I can give you the exact course and distance of each reach, I said, and I'll have time to work out what you'll have to allow for sets and currents. There'll be no wind. Let's look at it, sir, he said. Seeing is believing, but feeling hath no fellow. He opened the door to us, and we went out onto the deck. Harry, he called, just put on a shore hat and come along for a spot of fishing with these gents. The mate, Harry, I never knew his other name, all hands called him Harry, came up with his hard hat. He was a short, very powerfully built man with the brightest eyes I have ever seen in any human head. They did not glow as Burns's eyes were said to have glowed. They glittered. He had a deep sea voice and a roll in his walk. and From him came a hot, sweet reek of navy plug chewing tobacco. He had blue roses skillfully tattooed upon the backs of his hands. I had not felt quite at ease about Captain Tollock. There was something nervy and restless about him. I have thought since that these qualities were only in myself. But Harry... Harry at once reminded me of Sir Francis Drake. That short, compact figure, all readiness and force and humorous courage, was just as Drake's. Oh, this is Drake. Drake, come back, I said to myself. Come back to take us out by his channel. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast. And of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.